Welcome to another edition of Running the Race with Rob King. I'm so glad that you're listening to the podcast today as we continue through 1 John. And we're in chapter 3. We're going to try to get through verses 11 through 18. And we're sure glad that you're with us, praying for you, and I hope that you are doing well. Uh, let me give—I feel like we've been in this book for a while now, and I've, I haven't maybe done a little bit of a— <laughs> of a review. It's going to be that kind of way. It's going to be that difficult for me to talk this time. Okay. Just by way of reminder, John was an apostle, the same John that wrote the gospel of John, as well as the revelation, the revelation. It's not revelations. (laughs) That's just a little pastoral pet peeve of mine, I guess. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. He, He wrote that from the island of Patmos when he was exiled there later in life. This is the same apostle that rested his head on Jesus' chest at the Last Supper. This is the same one who referred himself, he referred to himself in the Gospel of John as the one whom Jesus loved. (laughs) So he had personal relationship, knowledge with Jesus. He walked with him, he heard him, he saw him. He loved him. He Can you imagine the years that he spent with Jesus and what this did to him? As I mean, first just to be selected as an apostle, but then to walk with Christ. And so he's now he's writing this letter, this uh, of his first of three letters that he'll write for two primary reasons. All right, one is to denounce the teaching of these false teachers. There was false teachers that had come into the church, and they were stealing people away. And there was false doctrine. There was not the apostles' teaching. Okay, so so that's one of the main reasons that he's writing. We have to keep that in mind so that when we're hearing what he's saying, we're comparing that and thinking of that in terms of, okay, how is this disputing the false teachers of the time? The second reason is that he's writing to encourage believers, He wants them to walk in the light of Christ. And I think the fact that there are all these false teachers trying to pull every which way, you know, pull people from solid doctrine and the apostles' teaching, he's concerned. He has a pastoral concern for the sheep, so he's writing that, but he's also writing to dispute the false teachers. It's good to keep those things in mind. Uh, It's good also to think of the fact and remember that John writes with a very stark writing style. And I'm I'm sure, I have no doubt this is the way he thought. This is the way he lived his life. In other words, he uses very black and white terms under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't mince any words. He's very courageous, as all of the authors of Scripture prove to be. We live in a world right now where no one wants to say anything and will do about anything not to offend anyone. That is not the way the apostles are. So if you read through Scripture, you, you will be, oh man, your sinfulness will be completely offended. So we're not surprised that in this portion of Scripture that we're getting into today, John is going to clearly just define and categorize people in the entire world into two categories. Think about that. There are two kinds of people in the world. The dead and the living is basically what he's going to say. John is summarizing the entire planet, everyone on the planet, into two groups, two groups only. According to the apostle, there are those who are children of the devil and those who are the children of God. 
There is no in between. There is no gray area. And isn't it absolutely refreshing? There are those who have evidence that God is alive in their life and has made them alive and redeemed them, regenerated them. And there are those who give evidence to a lifeless, dark, unregenerated life. Now, I wonder how people would respond in your life if you came out with a social media post declaring that there are only two groups of people in the world, those who are dead in their sins and those who are alive to God. <laughs> Probably wouldn't respond very well, I would guess. We, we live in a world that loves gray areas, don't we? I mean, the unregenerate heart, the dark hearts of men, don't want to submit to the idea that there's a God in the universe. We believe in the, the Bible teaches in the total depravity of man, our absolute inability to reach God, not only our inability to do good, but our lack of even a desire to want to do good, to reach Him. There is a God in the universe, and we are either in His family or we are not in His family. There's a common myth that's perpetrated around every day that we are all God's children, well, I think what people are meaning is that we're all created by God. And we are all created by God, but we are not all God's children. God's children are the ones that He has chosen to regenerate by the death and resurrection of His Son and, and, and imputation of righteousness and all that goes into that. Those who are actually born again, those are God's children. We are God's children. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God, and such we are. But that also means that there are those who will have to say, and such we aren't. And, and so this is what John is saying. This salvation comes from God alone. We'll see that in this passage today. It comes from Him alone. If you're born again, you have great reason to rejoice and give thanks, not because of anything that you have done, but because the work of God and what the work of God has done for you and in you. So what John does in his letters is he lets us know what it looks like to be saved. Okay, he lets us know what it looks like. What does salvation look like in a life? He's done this many times. It's, it's this, in this letter especially, remember, there are these litmus tests kind of how I can identify whether or not I am born again, which is important and not enough people ask this question. There's just an assumption that I said a prayer one day, one time, you know, and I asked Jesus into my heart. Instead of me asking Jesus into my heart, God has to invite you into his kingdom by his power, by his ability. And so it's good for us. We can look at these litmus tests, okay, holiness or purity or a desire for his word. All of these things indicate the direction of our life has changed. God has given us new desires. In this passage, John's going to talk about this, this other litmus test, which is love. Now, he's not telling us how to act in order to earn our salvation, but rather he's showing us what salvation looks like in the life of the believer. So this is evidence of, not earning towards, if that makes sense. He's going to give us evidence again today of what it looks like to be saved. A litmus test. Am I born again? Uh, do I have this fruit of the Spirit in my life that John is talking about today? I need to do a little bit of personal investigation to see, is this the virtue that I have given to me, not created by me, but given to me by God at, at salvation? 
So let's look at, uh, let's see, 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 18. Here's what it says. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Don't be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. That's a great passage. So I'll ask you this, are you saved? Are you saved from the wrath that is to come? Have you really been made brand new, a new creation, regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God? Are you His child? This, again, is the most important question we could ever ask ourselves. And, and now the evidence is given by the Apostle John. The mark of a true Christian is love. Of course, it's many other things like we learned. There's, there's marks, there's holiness and purity, a desire for the things of God, a desire for prayer, a desire for His Word, a desire for His truth. But, but it's also evidenced in our love, our love. The Scripture says, Hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who is given to us. So, that when we say we are born again, we're saying that God gives us His love as a grace gift. Another part of Scripture says this, Now, as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. I love that. And then another place it says this, since you have an obedience to the truth, or since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. So God not only you know, gives us our salvation. With that salvation, there's this grace gift of love. He, he's granted us the capacity to do what He requires in obedience to Him by loving others. Uh, if you're one of the—I guess I do a little side note here and say, if you're one of those Christians who doesn't think it's important to go to church or be a part of a body, that this is a tough passage for you to read then, I would think, because— John is primarily talking here about the love for the brothers, the love for the brethren, other fellow believers. Uh, and we're to show this love in word and even more in deed by actions. And how could you ever fulfill the scripture? How would you ever be able to judge yourself if you have love for the brethren if you're not actively engaged in a local body and around fellow regenerated believers? I'm not talking about a love for the, those in the world and wanting them to come to Christ, but a love for the brothers. Because sometimes it's easier to love those who are far from God and try to love them towards God than it is to love people who already know God and are maybe not acting like God. Just, just a thought, just a thought. 
So as we look at this passage, uh, let me switch gears a little bit. There must have been some teaching at the time from these false teachers that love wasn't a fun, wasn't fundamental to the Christian life. Of course, these false teachers, they're not regenerate. They don't have God's love. And we know from other passages in First, Second Peter, uh, in Jude, and other places in the New Testament that these false teachers were filled with pride, and you know, love and pride don't go together. And so they're they're filled with pride. They're filled with worldliness and what they can get, and and they're liars and they're cheaters and and they're lovers of self. So obviously, they're not going to ever be able to really genuinely promote a sacrificial love for other people. So John begins by saying. This isn't something that's brand new. This isn't brand new teaching. It's something that you've heard from the beginning that you'd love one another. At the same time, it is kind of new because we, we've just seen the Lord Jesus, who is the first to really put this on display, this love of God. I mean, in absolute perfection on the earth, it wasn't until Christ that we could actually have this, this physically, uh, what do I want to say, a model, a perfect model of what love actually looks like. And, of course, laying down his life on the cross, exemplifying for us what it looks like to lay down our lives for other people sacrificially. So John is going to contrast the love of God and, and, and in our hearts and then what the world teaches and how the world treats each other. So there's this stark contrast he's going to give. He's going to say, not as Cain, all right, I want you to love one another, but not as Cain, who is of the evil one. And slayed his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Now, this is what I find interesting. John here is bringing us back to the story of Cain and Abel. In the Old Testament, of course, a little refresher here. Cain and Abel both brought sacrifices to the Lord. They were brothers. But Cain's sacrifice was not pleasing. It was not what God wanted. And Abel's sacrifice was pleasing to God. There's a lot we could say about the sacrifice that both of them brought. But... um, I'll I'll save that for another time. It's interesting that both of them look like they're believers in God, but it's proven that one only one of them really was. Why did Cain hate his brother so much? When when Cain's sacrifice was not pleasing to God and Abel's sacrifice was pleasing to God, then then Cain hated his brother. Cain hated his brother because his brother's sacrifice was pure. Cain hated Abel because Cain was evil and Abel was not. This is the same hatred that Jesus faced when he was mocked and beaten and crucified. There's no reason for people to hate Jesus. Zero. But he was hated because the world hates everything that God stands for. There is an evil world filled with people who don't know God, that are controlled by the spirit of this age. We do not have a skin problem. We have a sin problem in the world. It's not this life matters, that life matters. Uh, We all have black, dark hearts before Almighty God. And that's the color that matters most, is our heart. Is it dead or is it alive? And this is what John is saying. There's this stark difference between the children of God, those who murder and uh, those who love and care for one another and are sacrificially selfless, and those who are of the enemy, who are murderers and who have hatred. So this same hatred that Cain had for Abel is the same hatred that Jesus was faced with, not because his deeds were evil, but because of the darkness of people's hearts. And we shouldn't be surprised about that. 
Every single person is born with a dark heart that condemns them. You know, people talk a lot about what they deserve. You deserve this and you deserve that. Well, the truth is, every single person on the planet, if God blew up everything right now in fire and we were all sent to an eternal hell, that would be exactly, actually, that would be justice. You don't want justice. That would be just. Because we're all sinners before Almighty God and He's holy and perfect. Thank God, by His grace, He's not doing that, but He wouldn't be wrong to do that. Why? Well, but because we're born dead in our sins, absolutely repulsive to the holiness of God. Every single person on the planet deserves an eternal separation from God in hell because of the darkness of our hearts, the evil that's a part of our very nature. And one portion of that darkness is that we hate the light because our deeds are evil. You see this in our world every single day. Why would people be so against the idea of God. Why would the world be so opposed to men being men and women being women? Does that strike you as just insane, as crazy? It does me. Why would that be so difficult? Well, because our hearts rebel against the way that God has made the world. Our hearts naturally rebel against a God who would tell us that there are men and there are women. God created them male and female, and that's it. Or how about just the, the, the fact that God created the world? So much resistance to that. Why would there be so much resistance to a God who made everything? Yeah, yes, he's a loving God. He's a powerful God. He's a creating God. But our hearts are so rebellious that we want to go against the very nature of God. Why would the world come up with and want to abort babies? Again, the darkness of our hearts, the rebelliousness of our hearts, and we don't want to be told what to do. So it's my body, my choice. But it's not your body, and it's not your choice. It's God's. He created us. Well, we hate that. Our hearts are rebellious to that. We want to have it our own way. All of us relate to this. We don't want any God or anyone else telling us what to do. We want total sexual freedom. We want to be able to practice any type of sexually deviant behavior without any repercussions. Not only do we want to practice that sexually deviant behavior, we want to label it something else and then have it be absolutely 100% acceptable. Why? Because men's hearts are desperately evil and wicked. Why did Cain want to kill and eventually did kill Abel? It has nothing to do with Abel. It really doesn't have anything to do with the sacrifice. It has to, to do with the fact that Cain was evil and his heart was dark. And this is the point that the Apostle John is making. In the, the world hated Jesus for no other reason than their hearts were completely evil. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, the world will hate you too. Now, some of you, just as you were listening to the last few things that I said about sexual liberty or men and women, I kind of went on those things. You're thinking, oh my gosh, the world is going to hate that statement. And I wouldn't be surprised if eventually these statements in our country, would we'd end up being imprisoned uh, for saying them. I wouldn't be surprised if it's labeled hate speech, but it's never a hateful thing to tell someone the truth of God's word. There's an intolerance among those who are supposedly so tolerant. And their intolerance is that they would never be told that they're wrong. But God, in His Word, has the right to tell us as mere humans when we are wrong. His holiness declares that homosexuality is a sin. His holiness declares that abortion is a sin. His holiness 
declares that divorce is a sin. His holiness declares that sex before marriage or outside of marriage is a sin. It's about him and his holiness and his requirements and his goodness and not about us and what we want or what we demand. I I find this portion of Scripture so interesting when it says, for what reason did he slay him? Why did Cain? I mean, he could have been upset. Right, but he—why did he kill him? It's a good question. Like, why were they so brutal to Jesus? Why were they so brutal? The answer is, it's the full display of the wickedness of the hearts of evil men, and that is all of us. And such were some of you before you were born again and changed. There will be no person who is in hell who could ever shake their fist at God and say he was unjust. This is where we begin. This is foundational. There are children of God and there are children of wrath, and you are one or the other. I want to read an extended portion of John chapter 8, because this really brings it about too, and I love this. you got to read this on your own, John chapter 8, because Jesus is talking with the religious leaders and the Pharisees, and it's just a, it's just a fascinating uh, interaction that he has with these guys, and what he says to them, and then what they say to him. Um, so this, this, what I'm going to read, uh, portions of it and go through it. I'm just doing this to further demonstrate that there are two categories of people in the world. Those who are born again, those who are not, there are those who have hearts that have been made alive by the Holy Spirit of God. And there are those who have been, who have not been made alive and they are dead in their sins. So I'm reading from John chapter eight. I'll start in verse 12. This is just after Jesus has forgiven the woman who is caught in adultery. The religious leaders are there. They're listening to him. And here's what it says. Then Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Okay, so just at the beginning here, Jesus is is saying salvation brings light into your life. This is written, of course, by the same author, John, through the Holy Spirit. So there's this light and darkness comparison. But we understand that when you come to Christ, there is a new creation, a new life. You have light, you have life. And in this passage we're talking about today, you have evidence of that by holiness, yes, purity, but love. Love is that light in your life. Let me read a bit, bit further. So the Pharisees said to Jesus, you're testifying about yourself. Your testimony isn't true. Jesus answered and said to them, even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and I know where I'm going, but you don't know where I came from or where I'm going. Okay, so this is the first time of many in this passage that Jesus is going to say that you do not know. I just want to remind you, that it is impossible for people to know God without God revealing himself to them. No man comes to God by himself. And Jesus is saying, look, he's looking at these guys and he's saying, you don't have a clue. Then he goes on to say, you judge according to the flesh. I'm not judging anyone, but even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I'm not alone in it, uh, but I am from the Father who sent me. So they were saying to him, where is your father? And Jesus said, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know also my father. So here again, Jesus is saying, you don't know. And the inference here is that they cannot know. 
And and they, there's absolutely no way that they can know Jesus without knowing the Father, and they can't know the Father unless the Father reveals it to them. It is impossible for them to know. This reminds me of where the disciples said, how, how in the world can people get into the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus said, with man, it is impossible, but with God it is, and it's only possible with God. So Jesus goes on as he's having this conversation with him. We're in John chapter 8. We've taken a little detour. Then he said to them, I go away and, I, and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. I'm, I'm just bringing out again the fact that Jesus was very clear. He was saying that there are those who are in the kingdom, those who are not in the kingdom, those who are going to die in their sin, those who are not going to die in their sin. So the Jews were saying to themselves, surely he will not kill himself, will he? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. And he was saying to them, you are from below and I am from above. You are of this world and I am not of this world. Okay, so in this, we see this stark comparison that Jesus is is making. It coincides exactly with what uh, John is, is writing in his letter, in his other letter, of course. There are people that are from above, born from above, and that there, there are people from below, people that are not born again. So in this next portion of John chapter 8, the religious leaders go back and forth about Abraham being their father and, and Jesus talking about his father. And, and of course, the religious leaders are saying, you know, we come from Abraham, and I'll, I'll skip ahead a little bit. They answered to him, the religious leaders answered to Jesus and said, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you're seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham didn't do. So Abraham didn't even do what I'm doing, and you're seeking to kill me. He's saying if you were regenerated, if you were really born again, if you were really God's people, you wouldn't seek to kill me. But since you want to kill me, you're obviously of your father, the devil, which he told them on other occasions. Jesus said, if you were of me, you would do my deeds. You'd do the deeds that the, the Father wants you to do. So this is a good time for me to ask us, are we doing the deeds the Father wants us to do? Do we have love for one another and especially for the brethren? Jesus said to them that, you know, you're doing your deeds, which are of the enemy, and I'm from God, and you don't know me. If you did know me, you'd, you would love me. They said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Can you believe the nerve of these religious leaders? They were basically calling Jesus a bastard child because Mary was pregnant before she was married to Joseph. I mean, and Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do, you not, why do you not understand what I'm saying? Is it because you cannot hear my word? Actually, he said the end there, it is because you cannot hear my word. Which is further proof that it is impossible for people to know God without God's direct intervention. Remember when the Apostle Peter came to Jesus and Jesus said, who do they say that I am? And he said, some say a teacher, a prophet of this or that. 
And he said, Who do you say that I am? And Peter said, You are the Christ. Jesus immediately said, Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. In other words, my Father who is in heaven has opened your eyes to see salvation. Jesus is telling these Pharisees, You are in darkness, you will die in your sin, and you cannot know and you do not know. This is why we pray for those in our life that that we know. We pray that God would act that God would, would, would take the veil off of their eyes and be gracious to them, that He would save them. It's not about their decision to come to Christ, that they're moved by in their emotions. and they, No, it's a first about God taking that veil from their eyes by His grace and revealing Himself to them so that they can be saved. Jesus is making this distinction in this conversation that they can't hear Him because it hasn't been revealed to them, the fact that they don't love Him and don't know Him. This is just proof that they're not of Him. If they were of Him, they would know Him and they would love Him. But they're not of Him, so they don't know Him. Now I go back to 1 John, verse 13 through 15, and here's what he goes on to say. Don't be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now, we know this from uh, Jesus' teaching that the moral equivalent of hatred is murder. So he's saying, don't be surprised if the world hates you, because everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And, And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Jesus said that you've heard it said you should not murder, but if you have a hatred in your heart towards your brother, that's the same as murder. Murder and hatred are the same thing. Hatred is maybe just without the physical carrying out of murder, but it comes from the same source. It's the same thing. Then he says, don't be surprised. Don't be astonished. Don't be amazed that the world opposes you. As believers, listen, we should never be surprised that the world opposes us. We should expect that the world would oppose us. It seems to me like in the church, we're trying to get everybody to, to like us, and, and we, we, want, uh, we want everybody to approve of everything that we approve of, but what does darkness and light have in common? Of course there are going to be people that hate us. When you love Christ, and your, your life is in Him, and He's made you alive to Him, I'm not saying we, we go around making people hate us, I'm just saying it's natural that the world would be inclined against us. Why? They don't love God. They don't want God. They don't desire Him. And our holiness and righteousness and love and sacrifice and giving and caring, that all just adds fuel to the fire. It's like Cain hated Abel. The world's going to hate us. And Jesus promises us this. He says this, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before. And, and, and it's going to hate you, Jesus said. If you were of the world, the world would love you. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. He who hates my father hates me also. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. This, again, is where I think we should really be leery of the entire world accepting some teacher 
some teacher in the church goes on TV and they're just accepted by everybody and interviewed by Oprah. And there's never any offensive thing they say. You never hear any talk of holiness or sin or salvation or, you know, heaven or hell. And the world completely embraces them. And then you got to understand that's a false teacher. If the world completely embraces them, they're a false teacher. Why? Because the world loves its own. And even the world will embrace a flimsy, flaky teacher that won't say anything definitive about anything. The world loves that. The world loves gray areas, flimsy talk, tolerant talk, politically correct conversations. They love nothing more than to get a religious leader on their side that will make no definitive declaration regarding Jesus Christ, his teaching, his holiness, his purity, or salvation. I've actually heard some so-called religious leaders They'd say, what do you think about this, about Mormonism? And they'll say, well, I think everybody who loves Jesus is going to heaven. And you're like, okay, for real? That's the kind of flakiness that, that we're around. If the world loves you and loves everything about you, then there's something wrong. Because the darkness of the human heart that is against God does not love the things of God. When really pressed and put to the test... Let's go just a little bit further here in this passage. We'll finish up here. Verses 16 through 18, it says this. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we are to lay down our lives for our brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. So, As we conclude here, how do we know what love really is? Well, we look to Jesus. We look to Jesus who willingly laid down his life. And the apostle uh, John who wrote this would have seen that picture. He was there. When Jesus was on the cross, he said, look, your mother, and to Mary, to John, to John, this is your mother, and to Mary, this is your son. He even gave his mother to be taken care of. I mean, he was there. He watched Jesus lay down his life. So the picture that John is going to give us is that, 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 that one of laying down our lives. No greater love has anyone than this than they lay down their life for their friends. This is an obvious and blatant reference to Jesus Christ, the one who loved us above all. So then we're called as believers in Christ Jesus to love as Jesus loved. This is the way that they'll know you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. And love requires sacrifice. Love is not a mere feeling. It's not an attitude. It is an action. To lay down one's life is to sacrifice real things in real time in order to benefit other people at no benefit to yourself. The world is selfishly consumed (laughs) with itself, filled with self, stuffed with self, and completely bored with self at the same time. And believers are, are willing to live unselfish lives. That really sets us apart. This is a line of demarcation among believers and unbelievers. Believers self-sacrifice to love for the good of other people. Believers are those who are willing to give and care and love when it costs us. We are marked by unselfishness, not just with words, but in actual deeds. The world tries to come across as compassionate or philanthropic. Most of those endeavors are done for self. The, the hearts of people are really revealed in tough times, in difficult times, when there's a run on the store and there's no, <laughs> there's, there's no toilet paper left or whatever. That's when, you see, that's when you see what people are really like. 
In the middle of tough times, Christians are true Christians, are those who continue to sacrifice, continue to love, continue to live selflessly. James 1.27 says it this way, Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is yet another way that you can know and rest in the assurance of your salvation. You can know that you're saved as you answer these questions. Do I love from a heart of love? Do I, do I love from a heart of love that comes from God? Am I selfish or am I consistently in this direction of selflessness driven by the Holy Spirit from this new life that I've been given? Do I love the brethren in word and in deed? Do I harbor hatred in my heart? Do I sacrificially love other people or do I selfishly live completely for me? This trait can only come from God. It's one of the greatest gifts of our salvation to love one another. Father, thank you for the love of God that has been shed abroad in our heart when we accepted Jesus Christ. Thank you, Jesus, that there's nothing we can do that, that could change our dark heart, but we require you, Lord God, to do what we cannot do today. Forgive us, wash us, cleanse us, O oh God. This is what we pray. Save us from this wicked generation. Grant us your grace to love the way that you love us. In Jesus' name, amen.